not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Georgie? Oh, sorry, um, Dorothy. Uh, but he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. All right. Back to verse 9. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, the, the second stanza in that verse is, nor have entered into the heart of man. That's natural man. Natural man cannot receive the things of God. And this is the whole point of Paul's emphasis in this passage. And can you all turn in your Bibles, please, uh, on screen in here, back to Isaiah 64, chapter 64, verses 1 to 4. That's This is where this passages taken from and that's why Paul uses that particular quote in this passage about how we are taught by the Holy Spirit and in uh, Isaiah 64 uh, verses 1 to 4 now you this quote is taken out of verse 4 and a lot of people have said to me you know why is it not word for word because the Old Testament that we use in our Bibles was is what's called the Masoretic Text, and it was finally settled on by the Jewish people in 900 AD. Uh, and what um, the, the New Testament uses is actually the Septuagint. And so that's the reason why it's not word for word, but the intent and the meaning is still there. I would much prefer quite frankly, to, to use the Septuagint, but, um, you know, the, the, the publishers have decided to use the Masoretic, so that's what we're stuck with. But have a look at what it is, it is in um, verses 1 to 4 in um, Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. And isn't it fascinating in that very first line, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Rend means to rip apart. Take a good firm grip and just rip something apart. That means to rend. And what happened the moment Jesus died on the cross in the temple in Jerusalem? The curtain, the veil that divided the uh, holy place from the holy of holies was what? It was rent, and it was rent from top to bottom. So even in this first line, we get this, this whole sort of idiom that we would ask God to open up the heavens to us that we might more partake of him and his blessings because they're hidden from us because we're in the natural world and we're in a natural body. But that verse really struck me when we were when I was doing the notes. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, brushwood, and as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may trem tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look. 
you came down and the mountains shook at your presence. Here's verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Every pagan God that every human being after the fall from the Garden of Eden created gods that they had to pacify, they had to worship, they had to placate. All of the pagan gods of history, if you've done any studies of, of ancient religions, and I, I love that part of my studies because I got right into the Egyptian um, uh, religion and the Greek and the Roman. And the funny thing is they're all copies of one another. Um, and they are a perversion, funnily enough, of the real truth. You know, in the in Egyptian um, um, ancient uh, religions, when a human being dies, their soul is carried across the river Styx and they're on the other side, and by, by the way, by a boatman. A boatman, like in a gondolier, takes the deceased person from one world to another, and then their heart is weighed against the feather of truth. And so even in ancient Egyptian religion, your conduct on, in this life was actually measured against the, the feather of truth and, and your heart was put on a pair of scales and the feather of truth was on the other side and if the feather of truth was heavier than your heart, you're in big trouble. And isn't it fascinating that we look forward to a time when we will stand before Jesus and have our witness on this earth um, judged and, and assessed by him. And so when you look at all of the different religions, they are just a, an earthly, carnal perversion of what the real truth is. And it fascinated me. But um, this particular cry from Isaiah's heart is that in verse 4, they're saying, Isaiah is saying in that particular verse, is that no one has ever seen, no carnal human being has ever seen or understood a God that wishes to please us, to come down and aid us, because ancient religions had the entirely the opposite um, dynamic. Human beings had to constantly please these pagan gods. And this is why this particular um, verse is just so fantastic. And this is why it doesn't contain the same words as 1 Corinthians um, 2.9 does, because you have the two different translations, Masoretic and Septuagint. And I just couldn't um, um, uh, resist, uh, when you look at the last line in verse 4, who acts for the one who waits for him. And I put down here in the, in the notes, Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31. But 31 says this, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. That's what God does for us when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and what 
Jesus did for us on the cross. And that is why Christianity alone is the only true faith on this earth because it is totally opposite to every other um, pagan religion. And we have another, now we have a look here. I want you to go to, uh, in that verse, that last um, verse in Isaiah 64, in Paul's rendition of it, back in 1 Corinthians, he, Paul, uses this term, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And we go to verse 10, so we're moving over to verse 10. But God has revealed them. What is the them? It's the things which God has prepared for us. Okay? Yeah, we're back in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. But God has revealed them. These are the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He's revealed them to us. How? Through his spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And in my um, notes here that you'll get tomorrow if, uh, if we've got your uh, emails, the word things is frustrating because it's mentioned 1,161 times in the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 1,161 times. Times And I spent a lot of this week looking at the various versions of things and all through the scriptures. And there are five different meanings of things. The first one is physical. So there are physical things in this world. And an excellent uh, example of that is Matthew 1.20. You don't really have to turn to it, but Matthew 1.20 is when uh, um, Joseph is has been told that Mary is now with child and she was betrothed to him and he knows that nothing has happened between them. So when he assessed these things, now these are physical things, Mary's pregnant, but he's not the father. So he decided, made a decision to put her away quietly so that she would not risk the, the, the punishment of stoning, which would have been the natural outcome had it been publicized. So th that is an example of physical things that someone had to contemplate. The second um, um, aspect of things is situational. And that happened in the very next chapter of Matthew, and it's Matthew 2, verse 3, where uh, Herod the Great was deeply troubled because in verses 1 and 2, we have the Magi that have come from Parthia, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're asking everyone that will stop and speak to them, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And in verse 3 it says, And Herod was troubled by these things, uh, and obviously um, uh, because he was, Herod wasn't Jewish. Herod was Idiomaean, so he was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. So therefore, he had no right to be king over the Jews. He was only placed there by the Romans. And so that is why he was troubled. So he was in a situation where he had wise men from the east in Jerusalem asking where he who was born the king of the Jews is. 
and and Herod had no idea about what they were talking about, mm. although there was this messianic expectation in Jerusalem at that time. And so that was situational, and they're still called things within that particular verse. And the third one is soulish, which is 1 John 2.15. Um, and this is where John is exhorting you to not chase after the things of this world, but rather the things that are of God. And, um, you know, over the last 30 years, even as a uh, born-again Christian, I mean, I, there's two things I loved. Um, Four-wheel driving, because I lived up in the gold fields, and fishing. So I used to sort of hanker and lust after four-wheel drives and really good fishing reels and things like that. And so those were um, things that I really, you know, sought after. I mean, they're not harmful, but um, now, quite frankly, um, uh, I used to buy fishing magazines and four-wheel drive magazines. Guess what? Now I don't. I just buy umpteen versions of the Bible because it's fascinating reading different translations. But it's it, as you mature, you take your eyes off the things of the world, soulish things, and you spend far more time concentrating on spiritual things, the things of God. And the fourth one is spiritual things. And if you've got your book, uh, Bible still open at 1 Corinthians, flick over to verse uh, chapter 9. And, and Paul actually defines this for us. In chapter 9, verse 11. And Melissa, because you didn't get to read the last time, mm -hmm. give us um, chapter 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Right. So what is, so Paul and the other apostles and the workers with Paul when he's traveling around is sowing into the people that he meets spiritual truths. What are the spiritual truths? What are these spiritual things? First of all, and you must always put this first if you're ever talking to people about this, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because when you present that to people, people will ask you, well, why are you using that example? Then you're able to tell them that Jesus is unique because he's both God and man, and he came down from heaven, took on the form of, of humanity, that he could bear the sins of the whole world on the cross and be the vicarious, atoning, redeeming sacrifice for all of mankind. And it had to be on the cross. It was prophesied by Isaiah. It was prophesied by David in Psalm 22. And it was mentioned in Deuteronomy um, that we looked at last week. So you use Jesus Christ, but also the spiritual things, as, as Paul has already pointed out, you and I are members of one body. I don't care what country you live in, what nationality you are, what ethnicity you are, what um, situation you're in, old, young, uh, working, not working, whatever. You are a member, a spiritual member of the body of Christ. And that is something that only a person who's born again can even begin to understand. The other thing is we're not citizens anymore of this earth. We are citizens where? In heaven, 
and we're looking for <laughs> heavenly things that will be given to us uh, sooner rather than later if, if it's no trouble, Lord. Um, so these are the things that Paul is emphasizing in this whole point. And the last one is divine things, things that are so pure that, um, that uh, they can only come down from God. And it's in this very chapter that we're looking at. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Carlo, if you can read that out in a loud voice, please. Just, tw just uh, verse 13. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual Excellent. Now, one of the things that, that you must understand is what I have um, and, and my wife has, uh, we have siblings who are not born again. And so when we ever try to talk to them about Jesus, about faith, about sin, about salvation, um, their reactions are quite fascinating at times. Sometimes they get hostile. Sometimes they become mocking. Sometimes they um, just, you know, say enough, enough, and they walk away or they ask us to walk away, one or the other. But you see, the natural man cannot receive spiritual truths. It's impossible. Why? Because it's foolishness to them. And, and uh, the divine things, you know, one of the things that you and I are never, ever thankful enough is that having been born again, we understand a whole new reality. And the reality that we're heading for in heaven to be with Christ and then to come back with him and rule and reign with him on the, um, on the earth, those are things that I don't think we can even contemplate how blessed we are to be in that situation. Because all of the heroes of the Old Testament, all of the, old, the heroes of the Old Testament will not be in our position because we are co-heirs in all things with Jesus Christ. And what really um, upsets me, because it, it may well uh, involve my, my family, is that during the tribulation, those who give their lives for their witness and faith in Jesus Christ in, the, in this seven-year period that's coming, that's going to be um, basically hell on earth, that even they do not receive the same blessings that members of the body of Christ do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we sometimes just don't understand how blessed it is that we have been born into an age where we receive such grace and such privilege by God simply because we are in the body of Christ and we rule and reign with Jesus and we're co-heirs in all things. Um, you know, and we won't really even understand it until we're up there. And, and, and I've said to the congregation over the last uh, 18 months when I'm preaching on a Sunday, do you know that you'll be able to go up to, you'll, you'll meet King David. You'll be able to go and meet King David. You can go and meet Abraham. You can go and meet Abel. You can go and meet Moses. You can, you, you can meet all of these people. But do you know the truth is, if you, you're not going to be starstruck going up to them, they're going to gaze at you in wonder and saying, Oi, Vay, how did you get that kind of privilege? Look what I had to put up with. You know what I mean? And, and, but you see, this is part of the divine wisdom 
of God. And we don't know why he does that for us because we, we're not worthy, any more worthy than any other believer throughout, throughout uh, human history. But he, he points out in Ephesians 1 uh, that it's, it, it's for the reason that he shows the riches of his grace in the ages to come that he bestowed all of this upon us. And it's the same in Ezekiel chapter 36. When he restores Israel to the land, he makes it clear to the Jewish people that he's not doing it because they deserve it. He's doing it because he promised it. And that's something that, that people just don't read carefully when they're doing um, Ezekiel 36. Because God actually says in the scriptures, I had pity for my holy name. And his name and his <coughs> reputation is on the line if the Jews don't come back to the land. So that's why they're there. <coughs> Do they deserve it? No. Do they um, earn it? No. Did you and I deserve to be in the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia? No. 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 And it's only when we're up there we'll begin to understand the magnitude of the blessings that God has poured out on us. It's just, it's beyond belief. It's it really is. is. Mm? Yeah. Now, I ask a question. Mm? I think it does relate. I just came across it the other day in Zechariah. Yeah. When Christ comes to earth and yep. he's on the mountain, the mountain splits. Yeah. Are we with him? Um. Yes, we have to because we leave heaven with him. But I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm of the position there that we don't actually, we're not actually standing on the splitting earth. He does that to cause a rift. Yeah, okay. Jerusalem. Yeah. If you actually understand that that whole portion of scripture very accurately, he actually causes such a physical rearrangement of Jerusalem that it actually becomes a plane. Do you understand that? The port city. It, yeah, and it becomes it becomes a plane because at the end of the tribulation, sorry, at the end of the millennial reign, when Satan is released for a short time, he stirs everyone up who are coming against Christ. These are natural human beings at this time, and it says, and they are attack the saints who are encamped on the plain around the holy city. And so if you link these things together, you must always take the whole counsel of God. Yeah. And, and, and what happens when Jesus comes back? First of all, there's a 75-day interval between when he touches the, the Mount of Olives to when he inaugurates the kingdom. <laughs> Because it's called the, the, because Daniel points that out in Daniel chapter 12, and it says, Blessed are they that uh, attain to the 1,335 days, which is the 75 day uh, period after he, he and we return to the earth. And what he does in that time is he judges the Gentiles in Matthew 25, it's the sheep and goat judgment of the nations, and he judges the Jewish people. In Ezekiel 20, verses 33 to 44, and then he inaugurates the building of the Millennial Temple, which is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, and then um, he assigns us, he assigns us our 
allotment within the the uh, the, the, the kingdom uh, on earth. And I have to tell you, um, I got in first. I hope this doesn't upset anyone. But uh, in 1998, when we came, uh, my my wife and I and kids came out from Russia after being there on a mission trip. Um, some lovely people in Switzerland, uh, very wealthy people, actually gave us their chateau to um, to stay in in Switzerland, and it was Chateau Venina, and it was in the ski resort of Verbier. Um, and uh, you know, there we were on the balcony looking over Mount Blanc, and uh, we were in this beautiful part of Switzerland, and. Um, it was just breathtakingly beautiful and you had black and white cows with bells around their necks and, and uh, Sue and I were wandering all over this beautiful part of Switzerland and I actually said to Jesus at the time, listen, if you're going to give me a portion of the land to look after for a thousand years, I'm putting my dibs on this one. All right? So all of you can rule out. The Catra Vale, which is the four valleys in in Switzerland, because that's mine. All right. <laughs> and now, having said that and boasted about it, I'll probably get a hundred acres in the Republic of Congo. But that's where you know, it was just, I, I remember walking around that part in Switzerland and thinking, yeah, oh, if you had to spend somewhere for a thousand years, this would be a very, a very nice place to, to stay at. But, so, let's get on it. Verse 10. What is it? Yeah, verse 10. We've not got to get through this. So verse 10 and verse 11 are, are, are combined because in there, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, the searching here, he's not looking for things, but because he is the, because the Holy Spirit is God, he knows everything, the deepest wisdom of God. He's aware of it. And as we grow and mature in our Christian faith, he reveals more and more things to us as we grow up. And this is a point that he's making to the Corinthians. Because of their childish, disgraceful behavior, they're blocking themselves off for, from receiving the blessings that God has, waiting to give it them, um, and as they should be maturing uh, in Christ. Because it's about three or four years since Paul planted this church, and their, their behavior is still um, utterly carnal. It's almost as if they're... Um, not Christians, but Paul has already stated in chapter 1 that they are Christians. And uh, it, it's fascinating because if you go to Hebrews chapter 5, I think around about verse 11, the writer to the epistle of Hebrews in chapter 5 really um, ticks off the Hebrew believers um, in, in Israel because he said, you have been believers for 30 years, and by now you should be teachers. But even now, after 30 years, you are still not capable of taking the strong meat of the word. I have to keep giving you milk. And that's what Paul is, is, is um, um, sort of shadowing here, that God 
can reveal the deep things of God to you if you are maturing in him. But if you are carnal, if you are childish, if you are babyish, he's going to withhold them until you grow up. And I tell you what, when, when Chuck Missler was here very, very uh, a long time ago, back in the 90s, he made a point at one of his presentations, and it's on a lot of his teaching, and it, it is very pertinent to what we're doing in these Bible studies. Chuck Missler said this, when you first turn to God, he will give you a little bit of divine truth, and then... He will observe what you do with it. Either you faithfully take that little bit of truth and share it without changing it, modifying it, damaging it, altering it, whatever. You just share that truth. He will then give you some more truth because you've shown yourself responsible in handling the first gift. He will give you another gift. And then as you mature, he will give you more and more and more. And it really depends on you becoming less involved with this world and becoming more involved in the world that is to come. And that's part of our witness. And, and that is part of our uh, test, test uh, to see whether or not we can handle the deep things of God. If we handle the little bit, the first thing he first gives us, then he'll give us more and more and more and more. But if you don't, if you mishandle that first little piece of truth that you get as a, as a new Christian, then everything else is withheld from you. And I have seen people over the last 30 years where um, they have taken an elemental truth uh, within the Bible and they've um, almost rebutted it. I, the, there was a friend of mine in, um, in the big church we were in in the 90s and he said to me, Stuart, he said, I really struggle with the concept of creation. I said, he said, because I can't see how that would happen. And he said, so I've been tending towards um, um, evolution. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. You know, and he said, no, but I, I just can't get my head around this creation thing. And, you know, uh, I was thinking about that. In, in preparing this message. But you know what? God, my heavenly father, has such an ironic sense of humor because while I was uh, you know, doing this message, finishing off this message today, I heard my wife who was in another room and she had a, um, a broadcast on by Martin Isles from the Australian Christian uh, Lobby. Do you, any of you know? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, um, Scott, nice one. You know who he is. I, I, I've actually, um, we, as a church, we support him, okay? So he sent me back an email a couple of days ago thanking the church very much for our gift uh, towards Australia, the, to the Australian Christian lobby. So I said, when you're next in Perth, you're going to come and, and preach it. That, uh, oh, wow. um, yeah, yeah. And he said, when I'm over there, he said, I'd be more than happy. But he was talking, he, he was talking on it in a presentation that he was doing in South Australia a couple of years ago. And he said, he was listening to on the radio as he was driving around Adelaide to a, an interview with one of these particle physicists that's working on this large um, hadron 
um, thingy in Switzerland that's been built underneath the mountains of Switzerland and it's a massive about a three kilometer, kilometer long metal tunnel and they're trying all of these weird experiments trying to smash atoms and protons and neutrons and everything together and that the interviewer said why are you doing this why did you spend billions and billions and billions of euros to build this thing the large hadron um, uh, collider that's it and he said, we're looking for the answer to a question no, hand, no one has properly answered yet, is what caused the Big Bang? <laughs> what caused the Big Bang? We are desperate to know what caused the Big Bang because we're looking for, because when you, when you, work, through, when you work through logic, Every effect has a cause. And so if you go all the way back through all the effects, you come to the primary cause. And we're trying to find the primary cause. And he said, we're looking for a particle. We're looking for a particle that caused everything to happen. And we're actually calling it the God particle. And I was laughing as I was doing yeah. this, this message today because they've spent multi-billions yeah. of dollars, of euros, building this thing to try and find the God particle. And for 20 euros, they could have gone to a bookshop and bought a Bible and solved the problem straight away. Give me, and do you, do you know why I particularly like that example? because that's the difference between divine wisdom yeah. and human yeah. wisdom. Some of the most brilliant intellects of the 20th century have spent their career looking for the God particle. And the foolish things of this world, which is us, already know. We already know who started the Big Bang. <laughs> John chapter 1 is the perfect example. You know, it, it just it just goes to show you. It, it's absolutely astonishing. They can just wait and around. There's going to be another very big bang. Yes, I know. There's going to be a very, very big bang. So it's, it's this natural um, um, wisdom versus divine wisdom. And in verse 11, Paul is saying, For what man knows the things of a man, except the spirit now notice it's small s of the man which is in him and so uh even so no one knows the things of god except the spirit of god and so the only way we can know god is have the holy spirit represent him to us because it's spiritual and I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49, please. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. 1 Corinthians 42 to 59. And starting with Lucia in a big voice. Sorry, 15. 
This whole passage starts way back in verse the verse early verse thirties, but in, in the interest of time I'm just concentrating on this one passage. So verse forty two. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Okay, forty three, Helene. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now what he's talking about is our natural body in contrast to the body that we're going to get. Okay, so Karen, please. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Don't, don't go quiet because they, they've got to hear you, all right? So speak. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Yep. There is a natural body. And there is a spiritual body. And, yep. and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. John? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. Amen. In my version there, I'm not criticizing your, your version, but for everyone online, verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Okay, Georgie, 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Well, and and yeah. as we have borne the image of the man, of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, heavenly man. Now, you couldn't, if you grasp that, if you grasp that in its entirety, just that passage, I will make sure you get a PhD sent to you from some seminary because so many people don't understand this. So many people don't understand that particular passage. So I want you now, those online and those who are new to Calvary Chapel, Perth, I'm going to repeat things that I've told the church last year. But uh, one of the lecturers said, you must keep repeating the basic things because um, they, they're the foundation of everything else. So what I want you to do is to turn to um, uh, Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And Carlo, I want you to read out that verse in a loud, booming voice, please. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So this is what Paul was referring to in that passage. We started off as dust from the earth. And how we got the life is, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So can you imagine? There's Jesus. He's in the garden, in that area, in the Garden of Eden, and he scooped up the red dust that was there, and he formed, physically formed Adam's body. And then he breathed, as God, he breathed life into Adam through his nostrils. Now, in the Hebrew... 
It is not life. It is lives. It's not hayat. It's hayim. And in the Hebrew, it's it's masculine plural, not masculine singular. And so that makes sense because man is a tri. He created Adam a tripart human being, a three-part human being. He is physical body. Adam was physical body. Adam was soul, had a soul, and Adam, in order to have a relationship with the living God, had to have a spirit. And so that's why in the Hebrew it is Hayim, because Jesus breathed the breath of lives into Adam, life to his physical body, life to his soul, which is eternal, by the way, and life to his spirit. And you can work that out through the life of Adam, because we then go to verses 16 and 17 of that same chapter. Go to verses 16 and 17 of that same chapter. Whose turn next is it to read? Lucia's? Okay. 16 and then 17, Helene. Okay. Big voice, big loud voice, aggressive voice, booming voice. <laughs> And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying. All right. <laughs> you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, it's dying. You shall surely die. All right. It's not you shall surely die, because the moment he, he ate of it, Something happened to Adam, but he didn't die. But something drastic happened to him. So in the Hebrew, it's not you shall surely die. It is dying, you shall surely die. Because the moment Adam rebelled against God and took a bite of the fruit, what happened? He died spiritually, instantly, dramatically. Why? Because it says the two of them knew that they were, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They ran and what? Sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Up until that time, they were clothed with the righteousness of God. They had this light around them that, that they were still naked, but not in a visible form. And so they were body, soul, and spirit. The moment Adam sinned, he spiritually died. He spiritually died. And that is why his, his, his punishment was that he was kicked out of the garden. Why? because he could no longer have a relationship with the living God because he was spiritually dead. And one of the things you've got to understand is it's Adam's fault that we are born the same way. We are born with a body and a soul, but a dead spirit. Because when we are born again, I'm going to show you the passage um, in a minute. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit enters into us and regenerates our dead spirit so that we become what Adam was before he fell. 
We are born a two-part human being. We have a physical body and we have a soul. The soul is the center of the intellect, the emotions, the feelings, the personality. It's everything that is you, but that is not physical. Do you know what I mean? If, if Chuck Missler uses this analogy, if you have got a computer which consists of a central processing unit, a keyboard, a mouse, and a, uh, a screen, it's completely and utterly useless unless you load it up with software. Otherwise, it just sits there. And you don't know how to get this thing working and productive and producing unless you load it up with the software that makes it work. You and I have a body, but it's our soul that makes it work because it has our intellect, our emotions, our, our, um, um, the things that we need uh, and know that we need to eat and to drink and to clothe ourselves and to take care of ourselves. That is our software, but it is immaterial. You can't weigh your, so your, your, your intellect or your soul or anything anywhere else because it's non-physical, it's metaphysical, and it lives within this body of ours. So what I'm saying here is that we are a two-part human being. But when we are born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we go back to being what Adam was before he fell. We then become body, soul, and spirit again. And because we have our, our dead spirit regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we can then now have a living relationship with the living God and we can receive divine truth and divine wisdom given to us by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And that is why when you are trying to explain Christianity to an unsaved person, they just don't get it because they can't receive it because they are not spiritually born again. They have a soul and they have a body. The one thing they cannot do is have a relationship with the living God because that is what Adam did when he rebelled in the garden. He caused us to lose that spirit, that ability to have a relationship with God. That is why he was banished from the garden. And the moment you and I are born again, what do we receive? Citizenship of heaven which is a spiritual reality. It's a real reality. Our aching, groaning, moaning bodies are just waiting for the time when we receive that citizenship and reality. But we have to wait there for that. And if you want to understand this, I really want you to turn now to John chapter 3. I'm not going to give you some... Um, um, PhD interpreter, not some translator of a Bible. I'm going to give you the truth from the person who is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. So I want you to turn to John chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 3 to 8. And the background of this is, one of my favorite all-time passages, the background of this is, that Jesus has gone into Jerusalem for the first Passover and he's cleansed the temple, created a, 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 an absolute uproar in the temple because he drove out the um, money changers, he uh, upended the tables, he just created chaos. 
He also did many miracles and signs and wonders that John doesn't record. But um, we, we now have that night, at night, we have Nicodemus, who's a member of the Jewish religious leadership, a highly regarded man, by the way, uh, and he's part of the Sanhedrin, and he's one of the leading teachers of the, um, of the, uh, uh, the Orthodox Jews in Judea at that time. And this is what happens in John chapter 3. Um, in the interest of time, I'll hurry it up. Jesus answered what Nicodemus does. He comes to him at night. And this is one of the sub-themes of the Gospel of John, the contrast between light and dark, light and dark. And the reason why the scriptures actually say that Nicodemus came to him at nighttime is that Nicodemus is a, is a two-part human being. He doesn't understand what is going on with this man sitting in front of them, this man that is Jesus, this man that has just done a whole days full of signs and wonders, and they don't know how on earth this has happened. And Nicodemus actually says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the things that you have done today unless God be with him. He can at least understand and, and work that out, that there's something going on here. One of the things that, uh, and so Jesus says to him in verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and in the Greek that actually means born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What have I just been saying? If you are not born again, you are not a citizen of heaven. You cannot be in a living relationship with the living God. And Jesus has just said that. This is him saying to the most religious man um, uh, in, in Israel. And Nicodemus says to him in verse 4, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And people are, uh, 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 who don't understand the Jewish theology of the time don't get that. They're saying, well, you know, is it... Is it necessary that a man, when he is very old, somehow re-enters his mum's womb and then gets born again? He doesn't understand. This is the difference between divine wisdom and carnal earthly wisdom. Because Nicodemus actually knew what it meant to be born again, believe it or not. It's all through the Old Testament. But what it means is this. As far as Nicodemus is concerned, let me emphasize what a what a, um, to be born again means. It means a change of identity. Even the old rabbis in, in Jesus' day knew that it was a change of identity. Because in Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, I will take your heart of stone out of you and I'll put in you a new heart and I'll put my spirit upon you. They knew that there was a, a, an ability in, in a man's life to have a change of identity. But they, in their, in their carnal wisdom, had come up with six different ways that you could be born again. In Jewish theology, if you were a Gentile, number one, if you were a Gentile and you proselytized to Judaism, you became born again. That's step one. The second way that you could become born again is if you were in the tribe of Judah in Israel and you were anointed as king of Israel, you were born again. That's number two. All right? You were born again, number two. 
Do you get it? It's a change of identity. You go from being a Gentile to a proselyte. You go from being a commoner to a king. The third way is at a bar mitzvah, at a, when a, a, a boy is, um, um, has his bar mitzvah at the age of 13, he has a total change of identity. He goes from being a child to a man. So that's the third one. The fourth one is that when a man gets married between the age of uh, 16 and 20 in those days, he had a change of identity from a single person to a, a father and a husband. The next one was when you um, became a rabbi at the age of 30, when you were, were, were designated and awarded the honor of being a rabbi after studying for years in one of the yeshivas in Judah, you became a rabbi at the age of 30. You couldn't be a rabbi unless you were 30 years of age. That's the fifth change of identity. And the final change of identity would, came at the age of 50 when you were made one of the seven teachers of Israel who were in charge of the seven yeshivas in Judea at that time. And that was the highest um, echelon that you could be in in Israel at that time because you automatically became a member of the Sanhedrin. You were automatically in the top tier of society. So your last change of um, identity was at the age of 50, you would be uh, the head of a yeshiva. And even Jesus points this out further in this conversation when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, you are supposed to be the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things. And so he's actually condemning Nicodemus for being an intellectual giant and yet be spiritually dead. And so that is why um, Nicodemus actually said to Jesus, how can a man when he is old be born again? Because by the age of 50, if you're a Jew, you've used up all of your opportunities to be born again, <clears throat> to have a change of identity. And that is why that's the brilliant um, display in this passage of what Paul is trying to get across to the, uh, to the Corinthian believers there is divine wisdom and there is human wisdom and never the twain shall meet. And Jesus says to him, most assuredly, this is verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and that's natural birth. I've heard some wacko, jacko theories over the years about what that means. It means natural birth. Why do I know that? Because Jesus emphasizes it in the very next verse. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's to be born of water. You are a natural human being. You are a two-part human being, body and soul. And that which is born, Jesus says, of the spirit is spirit. And verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he, this is um, uh, 
the brilliant, this is divine wisdom in its, in its apex. The wind blows where it wishes. And it, it, the wind is a, a bad, um, I, I'm not happy with that translation. Translation, because in the Greek it's pneuma. And it should be, the wind blows where he wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. What Jesus is emphasizing there, the whole process of a natural person being born again is mysterious and it's divine. You can't cease the, the, the Holy Spirit entering to, in, enter into someone when they're born again, but boy, you can see the effect of it and the consequences of it. And so as Jesus finishes off that, passage he says so everyone who is born of the so is everyone sorry who is born of the spirit and that's how we are able to re-establish re a relationship with God because we are born again and I've just included in there 1 Thessalonians 5.23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking to born-again believers, and he deliberately um, um, emphasizes the fact that they have become, like Adam was before he fell, body, soul, and spirit. Verse 12. We'll, we'll get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. <laughs> Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So what is the spirit of the world? The spirit of the world is enmity against God. It's everything that tries to pull you away from what God wants you to do and be. It's the spirit of the world. And you know how the, uh, Satan works this? is because before we were born again, we used to do things that we liked. We used to go places that we enjoyed. We used to eat things, drink things, um, travel to places. We were, we were carnal, soulish people that did lots of enjoyable things in the flesh but now that we're born again, we reject the spirit of this world and we take upon ourselves the Holy Spirit who is teaching us divine things. And by the way, what we get taught by the Holy Spirit is eternal. It stays with us forever. And, um, you know, I, I just... I. Um, I marvel even at what God has done in my life for taking away the things that I used to like and used to enjoy, and now I don't. Um, now I don't. You don't miss it. I don't do a thing. I don't miss them. I don't. I, I don't. What I really love is fellowship with fellow believers. I really love um, uh, being part of Calvary Chapel Perth. I really love meeting people, and if they say. Uh, why are you a Christian? You, you, you just have to give them um, the reason for the hope that is within me. And that's a privilege. It's also a duty and an obligation. Um, there are just things where you're, you're totally 
change from what you used to be. And this is what Paul is emphasizing in this passage, what you're doing in this passage, because he's, he's remonstrating with people that haven't even got past stage one. Do you see what I mean? He's dealing with people who are still carnal and earthy. And by the time we get to, to chapter 11, we see their behavior around the communion table is so bad that God has to act and God has to, um, um, look, it, it gets quite frightening what God has to do in, in, uh, in chapter 11, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. And verse 12, no, sorry, verse 13. These things we also speak. This is the wisdom of God. This is Jesus and him crucified. This is divine wisdom versus um, human wisdom. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. One version um, actually didn't have the word comparing. He, they, they had sharing sharing spiritual truths with spiritual people. And that's the only thing that you can do in this realm. You can't, you can't share spiritual truth with carnal people. They simply don't know it. They don't understand it. They can't receive it. They, that's when, um, you know, they think it's foolish, and that's when you get the mocking spirit. Because, and this is when you spend billions of dollars on a hadron collider <laughs> instead of buying a, buying a Bible. You know, this is, this, this is the, you know, give me strength. I, I, I laughed when I heard that, that thing today, and I thought, you know, what you could have done with that money, you know, in, in other ways. Anyway. You could have bought lots of Bibles. You could have bought lots of Bibles and, and shared them all around. And verse 13... That is, I'm just, I've just had here in my notes, spiritual truth can only, only be given to spiritual people. And who are spiritual people? Those who are born again by, and, uh, by the intercession of the Holy Spirit in our bodies. We are given eternal life again when the Holy Spirit enters into us. And do you know what the amazing thing is? In, in, uh, in, in Ephesians, we are sealed by him. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can remember my old mum many decades ago. We've lost all of these skills. And I, when I was thinking about COVID-19 and when, when I was looking back at what we were doing and scrambling for at the local Coles supermarket when we were looking at empty shelves, mum used to spend all autumn getting the summer fruit and bottling them. And we had all of those goodies to, to enjoy over the winter. And, but you had to do it right. And I used to, mum used to get me over because you had these very thin cellophane seals and you had to get them all boiled and nothing, nothing was allowed to be in the jar. And you would hold down that cellophane seal over the thread and mum would get the brass ring and screw it down so there was no air inside. And, you know, it's that sealing that keeps the fruit pure. And it's the sealing of the Holy Spirit that keeps us in eternal life. That's the guarantee. 
And if you want to understand the opposite of that, you just read the life of Saul in 1 Samuel when it says, and the spirit of God departed from Paul and never returned. Saul. Saul, Saul, yeah, Saul. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Um, but it was only one letter. It was an S for a P. But, but that's the reality. Okay, so we go to verse... Um, Hey, 15, I want to get there, I want to get there, I want to get there. But he who is, oh sorry, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. That is, that is a, a divine truth that cannot be altered. You might like someone who is not born again. You might spend time with them, but there is no facility in their being to receive spiritual truth until they're born again. And verse 15, but he who is spiritual, this is the one that I've got a, 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 a debate with. It shouldn't be judges. It should be discerns. That is a much better word. But he who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he is rightly discerned by no one else because no one else can understand what our spiritual um, thinking and, and uh, estimating and growing is because it's a personal thing between God, the Holy Spirit, and you as he dwells within you. And he is feeding you into maturity. And no one else can actually see that process taking part. But what they can do is to see the effect of it. They can see you used to be a rat bag 20 years ago, but you're not one now. And, and you know, you're a pleasure to be around. You used to be always a troublemaker 30 years ago. But now you're a man of peace. In fact, you you bring peace between people, um, and that's uh, you know one of the beatitudes. And we'll get to that at some stage if the Lord tarries. Um, and verse sixteen: For who has known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct him? But we, you and I, have the mind of Christ. Now be careful with this one. You can't go somewhere else and create another universe. You don't have that ability. But what you do have in this um, um, paraphrase is that as God took Jesus as second, the second member of the Trinity, took on human form and brought with him divine truth to earth, when we're born again, we have that same facility in human in a human form to take on divine truths and I can um, I can remember some uh, Pentecostal friends of ours many years ago saying you know I have the mind of Christ I can do all things and uh, I, I just said no you can't you can understand as much as you can understand as a human being in this life but you cannot go away create another universe create another dimension you can't do those things and you know um, you have to be careful because people um, started in, 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 the, in the congregation that we were in at that time elevating themselves because they thought they had the mind of Christ 
And I, at the time, was reading a, a book uh, and it showed me the stark reality of born-again Christians having the mind of Christ because it was relating to German believers, born-again German believers who were living in Dresden, the city of Dresden in 1944. And they were praying in Dresden for God to do something about Adolf Hitler and stopping this war, okay? On the other side of the Atlantic, there were American or even across the channel, there were British believers praying the same thing, but they saw two different solutions to the problem. And one of the dreadful things is that the believers, the born-again believers in Dresden had to suffer the worst catastrophe of World War II. You know, we talk about the two atomic bombs that were dropped on Nagashima, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They, when they exploded in the short aftermath, took out about 120,000 people each. The firebombing of Dresden took out 400,000 people. 400,000 people. And yet there were still born-again German believers in that city praying for God to end the war. And there's an even deeper truth that I'll share with you about Dresden later on. I'm not going to do it tonight because it will take all night. Um, but it, it has a lot to do with the Illuminati who are running this world now, and it's absolutely devastating. Uh, but anyway, we've got through to verse 16. Yay! So in verse 16, all I want you to finish off is turn to chapter 4 of the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And there's two verses left. And this is where Paul bows in humility. Now, he would be the most spiritual person in this church, but this is where he bows to humility. So 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. For I know of nothing against myself. All right, he, he is discerning and judging himself. Yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart then each one's praise will come from God. Mm. That would be the epitome of spiritual maturity. You walk humbly before the Lord. You don't boast. If you boast in anything, you boast in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You do not boast about your own special privilege, your spiritual elevation, your unique being within the body of believers over all time you don't do that my favorite um, um, memory verse is this one hebrews 4 12. <laughs> i love it the word of god is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing asunder to the dividing of the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow. Semicolon. That's part A. Part B is 
and it's a discerner or a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the Word of God is both the Bible and who else is the Word of God? Jesus Christ. And he knows what's going on in here in each and every one of us. So let the Holy Spirit give him free reign in you over the next week. That's your homework for the next week. And see if he can make a difference. <laughs> Father, we just thank you now for this time, this fellowship, this wonderful um, passage uh, where Paul shows us the reality between where we are now and where we're going to be soon. And Father, I thank you with everything that's in me that uh, we've had this fellowship tonight, fellowship online, and we are, in fact, the Church of God, which is in Perth and Western Australia, in Andhra Pradesh, in India, and uh, all around the world. Father, we just thank you for the privilege that you have given us. And I ask a blessing on everyone tonight, Father, that has joined in, that you look after them during the week, that you nourish them, that you give them more discerning and, and spiritual truth. And uh, just bring us back together again next week, full of the joy of the Lord, Father. And I just ask this now in the matchless, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.